Okay, today I'm going to talk about the uh, very misunderstood decade of the uh, of, of, of the 1950s. Uh, and if, as I'll be arguing in my next lecture after we have our reading period, uh, uh, the 1960s were the decade that defined America, that defined us, the 1950s may have been the decade that developed us. The 1950s were necessary for the development of many of the trends that we now associate with the 1960s, with youth rebellion, uh, sexual liberation, uh, civil rights, uh, an alternative culture. Now, we don't always see this for what it was. In fact, when we think of the 1950s, we think of the status quo, not change, conformity not rebellion, and acquisitiveness, not anti-materialism. And, of course, the 1950s were about the status quo and conformity and acquisitiveness, along with other conservative cultural uh, attributes. But buried beneath the surface of this rather placid-looking decade, the 1950s, were the seeds of great changes in American society that would take place in the 1960s and that we'll be talking about in the future. Now, they were very small seeds, oftentimes, but they were definitely there, and we'll talk about some of them today. Now, the 1950s were necessary then for the 1960s, and this sounds like a truism, of course, but I think that these decades, the 50s and the 60s, which at first glance appear to be as different as night and day, actually might have more in common than we might expect. And perhaps one way to look at the 1950s, I think, is as a sort of bridge between two crisis periods in American life the World War II years and their immediate aftermath and the traumatic beginnings of the Cold War, which we talked about earlier, on one side, and the tumultuous 1960s, which we will talk about, uh, on the other side. This 1950s bridge between the two tech decades was a hybrid then, and a hybrid culturally. Much of the earlier periods, conventionality uh, uh, in lifestyle and sexual mores, family structure, meaning the previous period, the 1940s, uh, but also the beginnings in the 1950s of what would be wholesale changes in cultural styles that would characterize the 1960s. Politically, too, the 1950s bridged the earlier New Deal era it maintained the New Deal's programs and its general philosophy of an interventionist government, although it did not expand it significantly, uh, and a bridge to the 1960s, which would see a large-scale expansion of government power and programs that would have amazed FDR had he been around to see it. Thus, the 1950s are a hybrid decade with one foot in the past and the other in the future, offering continuity and change, conformity and rebellion, and both the conformist man in the gray flannel suit and the beat poet in sandals and beard, providing both an end to the World War II legacy and an entree into the decade, the 1960s, that would define us. So, what was this uh, hybrid decade of the 1950s about? Well, 
when you talk about the 1950s, I think you have to talk about culture. And uh, 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 that's why Elvis, I think, is so important. And let me define culture for you again. When I say culture, I mean the way people view themselves and the world around them and the relationship between them and the world around them. How they live, what their values are, what they think is right and wrong, what they want to be, what they want their children to be, what they listen to, what they wear, what they watch. And sometimes the things that we as historians can see they took for granted without any conscious thought. The things they assume automatically as they live their lives. The things they think are natural, just the way things are. All these things make up what we call culture. And culture is at the heart of understanding the 1950s. Our popular image of the 1950s, in fact, uh, uh, whatever you think of when you think of the 1950s, the first thing you think of, I'm willing to bet, is a cultural image, although you may not actually realize this. When we think of the 50s, we think of suburbs and wives with aprons taking care of their husbands and children, like the sitcoms that we saw in the decade or that came out of the 1950s. Fathers coming home from work and eating dinner and either going into their dens where they would then receive their children Anyone who's ever seen the show Leave It to Beaver uh, uh, is familiar with this scene. Has anybody seen the show Leave It to Beaver? Okay. You know, Ward is always calling Theodore Beaver, as he calls him, into his den where he will uh, receive him, basically almost like a professor having office hours. You know, Or a father, if he's not in his den, sitting down in front of the television with his family to watch Westerns or Milton Berle or the shows that were popular during that decade. And, of course, if we needed a cultural symbol of the 1950s, it would probably be television, which almost all Americans owned by the end of the 1950s, not at the beginning, but by the end, the percentage was over 90. Over 90% of Americans owned a television by, not, by 1960. And television would unite Americans culturally uh, uh, by this time, even more than movies, I think, did in the 1930s and 1940s. And movies were really the television of the 1930s and 40s, the way radio was the television of the uh, 1920s, a cultural uniter. So, our first image of the 1950s, our initial mental picture of them, is a cultural one. And thus, our first question about the 1950s is, well, what was the culture of the decade? Well, there's much to talk about here, uh, both in the areas of conformity and nonconformity. But since however much change or rebellion there was uh, in the 1950s, and as I mentioned, there was some, the 1950s cannot overall be viewed as a radical decade. Uh, uh, and thus, it's with the theme of conformity that I'll begin my discussion of the culture of the 1950s. Now, certainly, the 1950s were the decade of the large corporation, uh, in the 1950s, for example, uh, the United States was producing half of the world's steel, three-quarters of its automobiles, and three-quarters of its appliances. That's a lot, obviously. Uh, and this large, impersonal, but very, very productive, efficient, and lucrative corporation became the cultural symbol of American conformity in the 1950s. 
the man in the gray flannel suit who worked for this large corporation, who never rocked the boat, who always did what he was told, who never dissented. This was the prototypical, the typical American during the 1950s. Perhaps Americans had had enough turmoil and disagreement during the Great Depression, during World War II, during the early years of the Cold War, and now by the 1950s wanted some harmony, some consensus, some internal agreement, some internal peace. And in the symbol of conformity that was the organization man, and for that matter, the supportive organizational woman who was his wife, the 1950s attempted to, the, to find this peace and harmony and consensus uh, in the culture. And judging from some of the criticisms raised against this conformist culture, it succeeded. William White's 1956 critique of conformity, the organization, the organ, the organ, the organate, how come I can't pronounce organization? The organization man. There, I got it. The organization man. Uh, the, William White's name is, is spelled W-H-Y-T-E, incidentally. William White wrote a famous book called The Organization Man uh, in 1956, in which that he argued that uh, corporate employees of these large organizations were sacrificing their own individuality in their slavish adherence to corporate values. Another name, a sociologist by the name of David Reisman, R-I-E-S-M-A-N, another famous book called The Lonely Crowd, took this assault on 1950s conformity a step further. Reisman attacked American society as a whole for destroying what he called the inner directed self. The inner directed self meant that men and women would look to themselves for feelings of identity and validity and approval, inner directed. But Reisman argued that American society created an outer directed self, where only the approval of others, other people, could supply identity and, valid and validation and, uh, and, and approval. Uh, in, today, in today's uh, uh, psychology, they would call it being a codependent. You know, the idea of psychologically uh, being a codependent, being so dependent on another person's approval that it crowds out everything else. In a sense, that's what David Reisman is talking about. Not an individual person here. He's, he's a sociologist, so he's talking about large groups of people. But he's saying the outer directed self can only get approval from other people and not internally. And he thinks this is, you know, this is very bad. Others, meaning the outer directed self, mean corporations, uh, 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 the media, the government, uh, any outside force uh, 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 that can give approval, that's what uh, 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 men and women, according to Reisman, are looking to, uh, and not inside themselves uh, for approval. Now, Reisman and others saw American society during this time as obsessed with adjustment, the idea of adjustment, uh, adjustment of individuals to society instead of the other way around. Perhaps the polar opposite of what American society would be in the much more individualistic uh, 1960s. 
And certainly conformity was everywhere you looked in America during the 1950s from the same cookie-cutter suburban homes uh, 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 that the organization man lived in, uh, to the similar-looking automobiles uh, that he drove, to the monotonously uh, repetitive television shows that he watched. Although not as much conformity as Riesman uh, uh, or White, uh, or, and here's another name, the sociologist C. Wright Mills, M-I-L-L-S, uh, who also railed against the regimented world of big government and big corporations, not as much as they thought there were in American society, as we'll see a little later. But certainly, conformity is the first cultural characteristic of the 1950s that comes to mind. A second and related characteristic is that of consumerism. Like the 1920s, a decade to which it bears some passing resemblance, the 1950s featured the rise of consumer products that became the center of people's lives, like the frost-free refrigerator, for example. Uh, we take them for granted today, but they were first, uh, 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 first produced in the 1950s. Uh, at least produced in middle-class homes, because if any of you have ever seen the uh, television sitcom uh, uh, The Honeymooners, and I mentioned Jackie Gleason, the star and producer of The Honeymooners, when I talked about the Depression. As far as I'm concerned, The Honeymooners is the second funniest sitcom of all time, next to, of course, Seinfeld. Uh, it's about, uh, it's about, the Honeymooners is basically about working-class life in the 1950s. And if you've watched the show, and I asked this before, but who's, who's ever seen an episode of The Honeymooners? Very few of you. Okay. Uh, uh, recommended. Uh, you will see that the Cramdens, this is Ralph Cramden, played by Jackie Gleason and his wife, have an icebox in their kitchen and not a refrigerator because they can't afford a refrigerator yet. There are also many other products that became uh, the center of consumer culture in the 1950s, uh, 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 like the automatic dishwasher, Clothes washer, these things uh, came, into, uh, came into use in the 1950s. Vacuum cleaner, the credit card, perhaps most importantly, which made its first uh, appearance uh, during, the, uh, during the 1950s, much to uh, the regret of many of us. Uh, even the TV dinner. All of these shaped American consumerism during the 1950s and spurred by an advertising industry that had become more and more sophisticated in uh, manipulating tastes and desires. Uh, the United States during the 1950s was filled with people who believed that more, more products, more gadgets, more things could make their lives more fulfilling and more meaningful. Uh, and here again, the parallels to the 1920s, I think, are clear. And Americans responded in the 1950s with a buying frenzy that dwarfed anything that came uh, before it, especially in the areas of household appliances and automobiles stimulating the American economy, incidentally, in the process, since virtually all of these products, as I mentioned before, are American-made. The huge American market, the internal American market, uh, 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 was stimulated tremendously uh, uh, by the availability of these products. The purchasing power of the average American rose about 2% every year through the 1950s, and the real spendable income of all Americans rose about 66% between 1940, which is the very end of the Depression, beginning of World War II, uh, and the mid-1950s. Uh, Americans seem to have an insatiable demand for 
uh, American consumer products in an outcome that finally and irrevocably put the legacy of the Great Depression to rest. It's clear that the Great Depression was not coming back by the 1950s. An orgy of demand stimulation that FDR couldn't have imagined in his wildest dreams. Now, how did all this consumption, not to mention all this conformity, affect American culture generally? That is, what Americans read, uh, what they listened to, and perhaps most importantly, what they watched uh, on television. Well, to many liberal and left-wing cultural critics, and again, these include men like C. Wright Mills and David Reisman and William White, you know, pe people I've already uh, referred to, uh, for these cultural critics on the left in America, uh, uh, the effect of, 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 of these, these books and these products, uh, 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 you know, these television shows, the consumerism, the conformity, all of this, the effect on American culture as far as they were concerned was negative and negative in the extreme. America had created, in their view, and again I'm referring to these, these liberal and left-wing cultural critics, uh, a mass popular culture that was shallow, that was vulgar, that was intellectually stultifying. A mass culture whose most prominent expression during the 1950s uh, uh, was the single most important advance uh, 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 in, the, uh, in the media, at least in the 20th century, of course. Uh, uh, and I'm sticking with that as a choice, uh, even over the Internet, at least for now. Uh, I'll think about it in the future. Uh, but, and that, of course, is television. The 1950s were truly the television decade, uh, a time when what some critics called the idiot box became a fixture in the American home. Although the choices that Americans enjoyed as television viewers in the 1950s, uh, three networks uh, uh, and maybe one or two local uh, stations, independent stations, uh, the, although uh, uh, the choices that viewers had in the 50s are dwarfed, obviously, by the opportunities uh, available today with, you know, with cable, uh, television in the 1950s nonetheless represented an enormous expansion of what the average American could see. The problem, however, according to liberal and left-wing cultural critics, again, Reisman, White, Mills, uh, uh, was what the American, the average American, was seeing on television. And with the exception of some original dramas from the likes of uh, Rod Serling, uh, who is the creator of uh, uh, The Twilight Zone. Who's, who's heard of Rod Serling and The Twilight Zone? Okay, uh, uh, some, some of those shows in the 19, from the 1950s that I've seen on reruns, I'm old but not that old, uh, are, 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 pr are pretty wild. Uh, another name to note from the 1950s besides Rod Serling is uh, Patty Chayefsky, C-H-Y-E-F-S-K-Y, uh, uh, -E uh, whose film Marty uh, is a great expression uh, of, of uh, one of my favorite films of working class life uh, uh, in the 1950s in, in my and Silvio's home borough of the Bronx. Okay, it's set in the Bronx, the film Marty. But with the exception of the work of Patty Chayefsky and Rod Serling and others, a uh, few others, what Americans mostly saw on television was an array of lowbrow westerns, uh, mindless sitcoms, uh, with the exception of The Honeymooners and I Think I Love Lucy, which is also very funny. Most of these sitcoms are unwatchable today. Uh, shallow variety shows. Television's effect, moreover, uh, and again, I'm citing the arguments of the cultural critics of the 1950s, was to destroy communication between friends and relatives, since, of course, everybody was too busy watching 
television for any kind of personal interaction. Uh, it also hurt family cohesion, uh, uh, hurt the nuclear family in the immediate sense of parents and children for much the same reason. Everybody's watching TV. They're not talking to each other. TV, according to these critics then, hurt American culture because it destroyed a sense of community among people, because it made them into separate, atomized individuals, lonely in the crowd, so to speak, uh, 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 to play on the theme of David Riesman's book, The Lonely Crowd. Uh, uh, uh. And the content of the mass culture that television symbolized was also destructive in a more general way. That even went beyond the, uh, the family or the family unit. Mass culture, and we can see this as the culmination of a process which had been occurring throughout the 20th century, uh, 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 throughout which such a mass culture was beginning to form, was harmful just in the sense of being national. It's the 1950s and we really start to see a national culture in America. Now, what's wrong with national culture? Well, it destroys local culture, local cultures, making the culture of the country all the same. Now, obviously, there are advantages to having a mass national culture. I mean, you go to uh, a McDonald's uh, in, uh, you know, in, 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 in rural Alabama, uh, and it's going to be the same McDonald's that you can get in New York City or here. So, you know, there is some advantage to having uh, a national culture. Uh, but diversity and variety uh, is not one of the advantages of having a national culture. And in the 1950s, this national, cult national culture springs up and starts to destroy the local cultures. This mass national culture, in the opinions of its critics, also dumbed down Americans and robbed them of the ability to distinguish between what was good culture and what was bad culture. What was a good movie, what was a bad movie. What was a good piece of music, what was a bad piece of music. In fact, argued the critics of the culture, uh, the mass national culture of the 1950s had destroyed the distinction between high culture and low culture completely in creating a one-size-fits-all, or more accurately, one-size-fits-the-average-American culture that they referred to dismissively as middle-brow. Middle-brow culture, neither high nor low. A culture in which for example, the television show Gunsmoke and a performance of a Mozart symphony were given the same exact cultural weight by all Americans, and in which, moreover, there was much more of Gunsmoke than there was of Mozart. Yet, the critics of the mass culture, the middle-brow culture of the 1950s, uh, at least those who were liberals, and again, Riesman, White, uh, Mills, are all liberals, are, are on the left, were in a very uncomfortable position because they were attacking a culture which, after all, was the product of American affluence. As I mentioned in my anti-communism lecture, the 1950s were uh, a decade of across-the-board economic growth. And liberal critics of mass culture were at the same time celebrating the economic system, capitalism, that was producing that affluence. Can you have one without the other? Didn't the two go together? And further, the liberal critics of mass culture, of course, celebrated democracy uh, 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 along with capitalism. The right of the average American to choose not just their leaders, but their culture. 
You can have a cultural democracy as well. But what if the people, or the average Americans, uh, who liberal cultural critics uh, uh, like Reisman uh, uh, and White, who they said they believed in, you know, they had, after all, uh, supported FDR and supported the New Deal and the war against the Nazis and considered themselves populists of sorts. Well, what if the people prefer to watch Bonanza, let's say, instead of the New York Philharmonic? What could these critics, these democratic, liberal, populist critics do short of setting up a cultural dictatorship? Well, what these liberal critics ended up doing was not, of course, taking over and imposing their highbrow cultural tastes on the lowbrow people, you know, forcing people to listen to Mozart symphonies. They obviously couldn't do that. But they did something else which would have repercussions, I think, for liberalism in the 1960s, and especially the 70s and 80s, and still has repercussions today. Liberal cultural critics, liberals generally, began to withdraw from the people and become more elitist, more critical, even more contemptuous of the average American in mass society and his ability to make judgments on his own. In this regard, for example, the popular support for Joe McCarthy uh, and anti-communism generally also didn't endear the people to these liberal cultural critics. And thus, the 1950s, I think, began a process in which American liberals would go from being the champions of the popular will, the common man. Remember the play Waiting for Lefty? Okay, that we, that, that, that we read? Going from the champions of the popular man to uh, the, the, uh, of the average man to critics of the average man, critics of the popular will, critics leaving a vacuum that in the 1970s and 1980s would be eagerly filled by, of all people, Republicans who in the 1930s themselves were viewed as elitists and enemies of the common man as foes of the average American. But by 1970, and we'll be talking about this later, uh, uh, as Republicans championed the silent majority, the people, the average American, and Republicans pilloried the effete snobs of liberalism, and you still see a lot of that today, one of the great role reversals in American culture and politics had taken place. And we will see that in a few weeks. The road to that road rever role reversal where Democrats or liberals are considered to some, to somewhat to be elitist and Republicans, to some extent at least, are considered or consider themselves to be part of the popular will. It began, I think, in the 1950s with the liberal cultural critique of American mass culture as conformist and sterile and shallow. So David Reisman and William White and C. Wright Mills, who are great scholars, very, very influential. Uh, as usual in American history, uh, 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 the, you, know, uh, the, you don't always get what you think you're going to get. They thought they were criticizing American culture. What they were really doing, to some extent, uh, 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 unexpected consequences, was changing the political landscape of the United States. Now, had some of these cultural critics, like David Reisman and William White, 
uh, 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 and actually another name for you is Vance Packard, P-A-C-K-A-R-D. He wrote a book about the advertising industry called The Hidden Persuaders, uh, 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 about uh, how uh, mass advertising has huge power in the United States. So he's another name uh, that I'm I'm calling part of the the liberal cultural critics. Uh, Have these liberal cultural critics looked a little harder at American culture in the 1950s, they would have discovered that it was not as conformist or as sterile or as shallow as they thought. Because even in the decade of Father Knows Best and Donna Reed, the seeds of a youth culture that would come to define the 1960s were already being planted. Now, much of this rebellious youth culture centered around music, and specifically around a new musical style called rock and roll. Now, rock and roll scared American adults for many reasons. First, it had its roots in rhythm and blues, black music, uh, whose raw power made whites very uncomfortable. Second, rock and roll was frankly and openly sexual. Perhaps some of you are aware that when Elvis Presley, uh, uh, who obviously personified 50s rock and roll, probably invented it, uh, appeared on the very mainstream Ed Sullivan show, Ed Sullivan variety show. Has anybody heard of the Ed Sullivan show? From the, from the 1960s. It's like about as mainstream as you can get uh, uh, as a variety show. Uh, Sullivan, when Presley appeared on the show, ordered that uh, uh, Presley be, uh, be, be uh, uh, shown on camera uh, only from the uh, waist up. Uh, uh, so his gyrations, as they called it then, could not be uh, shown on TV. Now, Rock and roll's open sexuality, of course, shocked an older generation, which was used to more indirect expressions of sexuality in its music. And finally, rock and roll was alienated music. It expressed uh, the young's rejection of the values and the mores and the lifestyles of their elders. Uh, It expressed, in many ways, their contempt for their elders. Many rock and roll songs of the 1950s, especially those of Chuck Berry, uh, said, in effect to adults, it's a teenager thing you wouldn't understand. And that would be rock and roll's message, an even stronger one, an emphatic one, uh, during the 1960s. Youth culture in the 1950s also extended to film and to drama where doomed and alienated actors like James Dean uh, struck a chord among young audiences. In the 1957 play West Side Story, an older character says to a young gang member, when I was your age, you were never my age, says the youth in what could well have been the motto of the rebellious youth culture that lurked beneath the placid surface of the 1950s and about which, as I said, we will have much more to say when we discuss the 1960s. And youth culture was not the only example of resistance to authority uh, uh, and resistance to conformity in the 1950s. There was also the collection of poets, writers, artists, and rootless wanderers who became known as the Beat Generation, uh, typified by novelist Jack Kerouac, that's spelled K-E-R-O-U-A-C, Kerouac, whose book On the Road became the great expression of, uh, of beat culture. And also, of course, by Allen Ginsberg, the poet laureate of the beat generation, whose poem Howl we read for today. Now, beats, so named because mass society had worn them down and exhausted them, 
so that they were beat, uh, they viewed mainstream American culture during the 1950s as irrational, almost crazy, meaningless, oppressive, not worth living in. And we can see this attitude in the poem Howl, which parodies and rejects life as mainstream Americans live it. Sometimes, in fact, the Beat Generation's response to the madness of American culture during the 1950s was madness itself. And Allen Ginsberg, uh, not surprisingly from the way he wrote, spent some time in a mental institution. But the Beat poets and writers did offer, like youth culture, a critique and an alternative to the traditional culture of the 1950s, and again, like youth culture, a link to what, by the 1960s, would be a full-fledged challenge to mainstream values, what we call the counterculture. So, 1950s culture was, at least on its surface, conformist, consumerist, and homogeneous. But beneath that surface, rebellious, anti-materialist, and diverse. Both cultures would carry on, of course, into the 1960s, where they would do battle on much more equal terms. The counterculture by then, of course, was no longer underground, and the two cultures would continue their battle to this day. Bill Clinton's Secret Service code name, I should note, was Elvis, and that's no coincidence. Now, the 1950s, as I said, resonate most deeply in the realm of culture, but there was obviously a lot more going on in this decade. Demographically, two trends stand out for me. The first is the mass movement of whites to the suburbs and the corresponding decline of the increasingly minority-dominated central cities. Now, the suburbs grew explosively during the 1950s. They grew by 50% just between 1947 and 1953 alone, fueled by the affluence of a new middle class, a largely white middle class, talked about earlier, which itself had almost tripled between 1940, end of the Depression, and the mid-1950s. This new prosperity helped the suburbs grow during this time, as did whites' desire to put some distance uh, between themselves and uh, minorities, especially blacks, who had moved into the northern cities in large numbers during and after World War II. I talked about this uh, in connection with the Agricultural Adjustment uh, uh, Act, which uh, drove blacks off the farms uh, and into the northern cities starting in the 1930s. It was also the natural American desire to own a home of their own, on land of their own. Even uh, Alexis de Tocqueville, the great French observer of American life in the 1830s, remarked on this desire by Americans to own land and to own a place uh, of their own. This also played a major role in the movement uh, to the uh, suburbs. Who's heard of Alexis de Tocqueville? Okay. He's, uh, uh, it, that's spelled D-E small d, small e, T-O-C-Q-U-E-V-I-L-L-E. He is a great observer, a Frenchman who comes uh, to the United States uh, in the 1830s and travels around and then writes writes a a book called Democracy in America, uh, which has very, very good, sharp uh, uh, observations about what Americans and what America is like. Uh, I teach a, an American studies course and I use him uh, heavily. Uh, sometimes I chuckle. He, he may have been the last Frenchman 
to truly understand the United States, but that's another, uh, uh, that's another subject. Now, it was also the policies of the federal government that made all this mass suburbanization and this mass racial segregation possible because the Federal Housing Authority began a program of low-rate mortgages to home builders after World War II, after 1945. Often, these were coupled with tax breaks and subsidies to the builders and developers, uh, uh, all under a, an act called the, How, the Federal Housing Act of 1949, probably the most important act in American history that you never heard of. Uh, uh, Who's heard of the Housing Act, uh, Federal Housing Act of 1949? But nobody heard of it. Okay, so the most important act I think you've never heard of. Uh, under this act, uh, 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 middle-class housing was encouraged, often in the suburbs. And at the same time, the Federal Housing Act of 1949, as part of its urban renewal provisions, uh, mandated the construction of low-income housing uh, for uh, mostly minorities who were uprooted by their homes by or, or from their homes by urban renewal. And all these you know, agencies and policies and laws worked together after World War II to facilitate white moves to the suburbs uh, and to freeze minorities in uh, inner cities. The Federal Housing Authority, for example, refused to grant loans to minority applicants for purchases of homes in suburban areas, and often even refused them uh, loans even if they wanted to purchase in an already existing minority neighborhood, a practice that is known as redlining. Uh, and minorities were left with few alternatives besides public housing in segregated uh, urban neighborhoods. And to make matters even worse for minorities trapped in the inner cities, the Federal Housing Act of 1949, the most important act you've never heard of, also made it possible for suburban areas to veto the construction of public housing in their areas, which, not surprisingly, they mostly did. And finally, the Federal Highway Act of 1956, which built a series of freeways and expressways uh, out of cities and into suburban areas, uh, ostensibly for national security purposes, but really to carry white commuters uh, uh, back and forth between their home, uh, homes and jobs, uh, completed the encirclement of minorities in the central cities. So the major demographic change major demographic trend of the 60s was the separation of black and white Americans with the active aid and abettance of the federal government into white suburbs and black inner cities, a trend that would have explosive consequences for Americans, both black and white, in the 1960s and beyond. Now, the other major demographic trend of the 1950s involved the containment, so to speak, of women in the American home. You've heard me use the word containment uh, in the Cold War context, meaning the containment of, uh, of the Soviet Union, the containment of communism, but there's also an aspect of containment uh, that is gender-related, the containment of women in the American home in the 1950s. Now, during the Depression and World War II, uh, women entered the workforce in large numbers. 
uh, by necessity, obviously, since in both cases they were necessary. Uh, uh, during the 1930s, during the Depression, to a large extent, women's work, so to speak, quote-unquote women's work, you know, work, you know, work as, as a secretary or work as a maid, uh, uh, to some extent uh, uh, was the only work that was available to anyone. So they went into the workforce then. During World War II, they obviously went into the workforce because the men were off fighting. Uh, uh, now, after the war, uh, uh, while women, especially married women, continued to work outside the home, they continued to do that, the atmosphere in the United States, uh, caused partially, I think, by the Cold War uh, and partially by the return of affluence, uh, changed considerably regarding what women's, women's role should be. Women were now encouraged by civic leaders, by psychologists, even by Dr. Benjamin Spock, who was the celebrated baby doctor. Who's heard of Dr. Benjamin Spock? Okay, see, if you're from my generation, you would have heard of it because he wrote a best-selling book uh, in the 19... Well, I think it started, came out in the 40s, but became popular in the 50s and 60s about how to raise your child. You know, uh, uh, it, it was this immense bestseller. Anyone in the 1950s and 60s would have known who Dr. Spock was. Well, even Dr. Spock uh, uh, encouraged women in the 50s to view their homes, their husbands, and their children as their main responsibilities. And women answered this call to return to the home, marrying younger and younger. The average age uh, for women marrying dropped to about 20 during, uh, uh, during the 1950s, leaving college to get married. Uh, the percentage of women pursuing professional training fell uh, sharply in the post-World War II years, giving up careers never to return uh, as soon as they were married, and having more and more children, as illustrated uh, famously by the baby boom a spike upward in the American birth rate between 1945 and the late 1950s. It was in the 1950s, above all, that women defined themselves as wives and mothers, almost to the exclusion of all else, creating an atmosphere in which a woman who worked, even by necessity, had to explain herself. In fact, to illustrate that, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded of a, uh, a, a sitcom, a bad one in the 1950s, called My Little Margie. Uh, uh, and My Little Margie is about a single working woman. And uh, she is portrayed, it's a, it's a sort of a light comedy, and she is portrayed as something of a kook, something of a nut, something, of, something is out of the ordinary with My Little Margie because she's single and she's working. That's the atmosphere of the 1950s. Now, during the 1950s, older women, many of uh, whom had fought gender stereotyping to get out of the home in earlier generations, could only look, upon, uh, look on in bemusement as their daughters and their granddaughters went in the other direction, back to the protected home. But while the protected home did offer a degree of protection in the 1950s, it also became the site of loneliness, of unfulfillment, and of boredom. And we will see how, in the 1960s, the frustration of women in the supposedly protected home would spill out into the passion of the women's movement. But for now, the world of the 1950s woman, that of June Cleaver and Donna Reed, as well as that of another suburban wife named Betty Friedan, who we will hear more from later, 
seemed smooth and calm on the surface, still waters whose depth was not yet apparent. Now, the president who presided over all of this in this decade in America, uh, most of it at least, from 1953 to 1961, was, of course, World War II military hero Dwight Eisenhower. And Eisenhower's personality and demeanor on the surface seemed to fit perfectly into the tenor, the atmosphere of the 1950s. Ike, as he was nicknamed, projected a genial, grandfatherly, casual style that gave many of his critics on both the right and the left the, imp- the impression of that of a bumbler. And Ike's almost legendary inarticulateness uh, in his public statements did very little to dispel this image as a, uh, uh, of a genial bumbler. To illustrate that, I'm going to read you a parody of Dwight Eisenhower reading what was, for, well, let, let, me, let, let, let me set the scene here. Uh, journalists in the 1950s viewed Eisenhower as being very, very inarticulate, and he was pretty inarticulate. Uh, uh, and one of them said, well, what if Dwight Eisenhower had, had to uh, deliver the Gettysburg Address? You know, what if he had to do the Gettysburg Address instead of Lincoln? What would he have said? Okay, now we know what Lincoln said, of course, right? You know, very, very eloquent. I, I'll, I'll read the first, you know, sentence or two to set this up. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. These are great cadences. I mean, you know, this is probably, along with the I Have a Dream speech, the most eloquent speech in American history. So a journalist said, well, what if Dwight Eisenhower had had to write and deliver the Gettysburg Address? Well, this is his parody. I'll read the beginning of it. This is Dwight Eisenhower delivering the Gettysburg Address. I haven't checked these figures, but 87 years ago, I think it was, a number of individuals organized a governmental setup here in this country. I believe it covered certain eastern areas with this idea that they were following up based on a sort of national independence arrangement and the program that every individual is just as good as every other individual. Well, now, of course, we are dealing with this big difference of opinion, a civil disturbance, you might say, although I don't like to appear to take sides or name any individuals. And the point is naturally to check up by actual experience in the field to see whether any governmental setup with a basis like the one I was mentioning has any validity and find out whether that dedication uh, by those early individuals will pay off in lasting values and things of that kind. Okay, that's Dwight Eisenhower delivering the uh, Gettysburg uh, uh, address. But, like the 1950s themselves, surface appearances can deceive because in reality, Dwight Eisenhower was a focused decisive and hard-nosed executive. Uh, After all, you can't command the combined allied forces during World War II, as Eisenhower did, without some organizational and executive ability. In fact, I can imagine a reporter, maybe the one who wrote this parody, asking Eisenhower during the 1952 presidential campaign whether he had any significant organizational ability. And I, replying in his very low-key, casual way, well, there was this little operation I put together during World War II, you know, called D-Day. So, 
Ike was much more focused and aware as the president uh, than his contemporaries realized. And recently, many historians uh, uh, have uh, uh, given him the credit that he deserves uh, in this regard. He is climbing up in the uh, rankings of, uh, of, 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 you know, of presidents, the polls that usually are coming out every couple of years. Now, domestically, Eisenhower, while he was no great admirer of the New Deal, made no moves to dismantle the New Deal, as some of his supporters on the right had hoped he would. Remember, this is the first Republican president in 20 years. But also, no great moves to expand the New Deal, as his critics on the left had hoped. Eisenhower, in fact, was probably America's most budget-conscious president since Herbert Hoover. He attempted to balance the federal budget. Uh, he refused to engage in the kinds of Keynesian deficit spending that FDR had pioneered during his uh, second New Deal, you know, the consumption-oriented policies, uh, and which many liberals were now demanding both to stimulate the economy and to fund s social welfare programs. John Kenneth Galbraith, another word I'll spend, a name I'll spell, G-A-L-B-R-A-I-T-H, John Kenneth Galbraith, whose famous 1958 book, The Affluent Society, demanded government spending and huge amounts of government spending for the public good, was among the most prominent of these liberal critics, liberal Keynesian critics of, of, of Ike. Uh, uh, and I, when I, I mean Keynes, K-E-Y-N-E-S, John Maynard Keynes, the deficit spending, uh, consumption stimulating or stimulating oriented uh, 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 economist who influenced the Second New Deal. Eisenhower also angered liberals through his general reluctance to use federal power aggressively to solve domestic problems, especially racial problems. Eisenhower viewed civil rights as primarily a state affair and except in his use of federal troops to ensure compliance with a federal court order integrating the Little Rock, Arkansas uh, schools in 1957. Eisenhower was not personally happy with the landmark Brown decision of 1954 striking down segregated education, but did believe that he had a responsibility as the chief executive uh, to enforce the law. And when a court issues a ruling, you have to obey the ruling, uh, except for the use of troops in uh, Little Rock. Eisenhower was generally passive in the area of race relations and civil rights throughout his presidency. And Eisenhower was equally cost-conscious uh, 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 and cautious in his conduct of foreign policy during his presidency. Upon assuming office, he announced a new approach to national defense in the Cold War, which he called the New Look. Now, the New Look rejected the vast military spending policies of the uh, Truman years from 1945 to 1953. Uh, Eisenhower feared that they would wreck the United States budget. He feared spending that would do more than stimulate the economy. Uh, after a certain point, Eisenhower believed it would destroy the economy. And so the New Look policy substituted cheaper nuclear weapons and the threat of mutually assured destruction. Uh, a high-stakes game of what you, what you would call chicken with the Soviet Union, uh, substituted that for more expensive conventional weaponry. And Eisenhower also substituted covert action in nations where communism seemed to be spreading, meaning CIA activity uh, and economic uh, assistance or sanctions to friends or enemies. 
Uh, he substituted this for more expensive and more provocative ground wars in far-off places like Vietnam. Eisenhower avoided direct United States involvement uh, in Vietnam. Uh, he viewed it as too risky, a policy that uh, his successors, Kennedy and Johnson, obviously changed. And I should note here, incidentally, that Eisenhower had a very wide view of what a communist was. Just about anyone who wanted to redistribute income in a developing nation uh, was a communist to Eisenhower. Uh, uh, and Eisenhower used uh, economic sanctions and covert action to subvert both democratic non-Marxist regimes, uh, as in Guatemala in 1954 when he overthrew that regime, and also nationalist regimes that were not controlled by the Soviet Union, like Egypt in 1956, which Eisenhower didn't, uh, uh, didn't overthrow, but certainly worked uh, against. Uh, Eisenhower also supported a series of anti-communist dictators, especially in uh, uh, Latin America, uh, whose main attraction was their anti-communism. I used that line from FDR in the 1930s about the dictator of Nicaragua being an SOB, but our SOB, well, Eisenhower continued that. Although the 1957 launch of the Soviet uh, space satellite Sputnik uh, caused Congress to appropriate more money for education and defense, it's still fair to say that Eisenhower, ironically, considering his military background, was a fiscal conservative when it came to the defense budget. And he left office in January 1961, warning, ironically, about the dangers of the military-industrial complex. Warnings his successor, JFK, who was definitely not a fiscal conservative on defense spending, clearly did not take to heart. We'll see the result of Kennedy's different approach to this issue, of course, when we discuss Vietnam. So, as the 1950s came to an end, America was still prosperous, enjoying prodigious economic growth, still not involved in any major land war, and, of course, still watching a lot of bad television. Times, then, were good in America, with the exception of the bad TV, of course. Or were they? Many Americans, despite prosperity, were getting restless, and this time, not just young fans of James Dean or Elvis Presley, or beat poets like Allen Ginsberg, but responsible adults who were concerned that America was not living up to its promises, to its potential. There was still poverty in the United States, uh, for example, despite the uh, affluence of the decade. There was still no equal rights for blacks, despite the Brown v. Board of Education decision. And you didn't have to be a liberal cultural critic like David Reisman or William White to wonder about the meaning of life in the United States, a land of material abundance but moral confusion, of powerful organizations but weak organization men, of outward confidence but quiet desperation. To many, America needed to be challenged, to challenge itself, to, in the words of its young, charismatic, new leader, JFK, inaugurated in January 1961, to get moving again. America, they and he believed, had the resources to make great changes, to do great good, both domestically and abroad. All America lacked was the will. 
And next time, when we discuss the 1960s, we'll see how this sense of dissatisfaction, of restlessness, and possibility played out in a decade that inspired us, divided us, and ultimately defined us.